Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. In many ways, we just sang a sermon, which was magnificent. And so, Amelia, thank you and Ben for leading us in that ancient hymn. So last week, we began a new sermon series called Sent Out. Um, There are booklets in the narthex if you would like a booklet to follow along throughout the next few weeks, uh, prompts, questions, summaries of what we're going to be journeying through. And Father Allen walked us through the beginning of Acts chapter 16 last week, where we learned how the Holy Spirit is at work, how the Holy Spirit is on the move, leading Paul and Silas, the apostles and the followers of Jesus into many uncharted territories as they preach the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, one of the things we must remember as we continue to journey with these apostles is this, that God is at work. God is at work to fulfill God's mission, of which Paul and Silas are a part. This is important because understanding whose mission and ministry we participate in makes all the difference. And not only for Paul and Silas's lives, but for our lives as well here at Redeemer. Have you ever considered what actually makes Christian ministry Christian? Have you ever considered what makes Christian faith, what makes Christian mission actually Christian at all? Think about this for a moment. What makes it Christian? The answer is Jesus Christ, which is to say that neither you, nor I, nor Alan, nor Dan, nor Dodd, nor Drew, nor Bishop Steve, nor the ACNA, nor this church, nor you or I, nor any of us have a ministry or any part in ministry apart from the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. All ministry must be understood as being founded upon God's grace and faithfully exercised in participation with the life and ministry of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The church has no existence apart from being called and being in and through the work and ministry of Christ. And we are equipped by it, as we learn in Scripture time and time again, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that unites you and I, this church, and every other Christian and church in the world to the ministry of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that ministry is, has, and will be accomplished because of the work that Christ has done for us, in and through us with us. I really believe that Paul and Silas understood this well. And this is something that we would do well to remember and commit to as we seek to remain responsive as faithful believers to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, 
understanding whose mission and ministry we are participating in makes all the difference. Amen? The Spirit of God is at work. And the Spirit of God is on the move. And we see this in Acts 16. In Acts 16, Luke has invited us to journey with Paul and Silas on the road where the Spirit of God leads. And we now find them outside the gate of a city called Philippi. And they're seeking a place of prayer where they will soon encounter two very different women. Lydia, who is a representative uh, of, of Caesar with the business that she runs. She's a very reputable businesswoman and a slave girl, which will eventually lead to a turn of events that Paul and Silas never would have imagined. What we will soon discover is that so much of the work of Christian discipleship is actually located between these two women. Because together, these two women they kind of light up the spaces where the Spirit of God is at work to establish a new order in this city of Philippi. So turn with me to Acts 16, verses 11 through 40, as Paul and Silas journey into their first encounter, Lydia. So they're guided by the Holy Spirit. And Paul and Silas, they're led into Philippi where they encounter this woman, Lydia. She's a woman of high social status with considerable wealth from her business of selling purple. And believe it or not, purple was the imperial color and most likely indicates to us a clue about some connection she or her business had to Caesar. It also signals that there is a particular social order at play in this story. Philippi was a city under Roman rule. In many cities under Roman rule in the ancient world, citizenship, what it meant to be a person, what it meant to be a human was tied to certain privileges and all their accompanying power. To be Roman was better than being Jewish or anything else. To be male was better than being female. And whether or not you had little or no power at all, if you were born male with Roman citizenship, then you certainly possessed a good measure of privilege in that world. This was the social climate in Philippi. And this was the world that Lydia lived in, which in many ways kind of complicated her social position, right? I mean, she represents both subjugation and privilege at the same time. I think this is important for us to really think about because the temptation is for us to believe that those who are privileged cannot or are not subjugated to others, or that those we know and see subjugated are lacking in privilege. While this might be the case at times, what is more often the case is that there are many layers at play in real lives of real people. And here in Acts 16, we discover that this is certainly the case, that there are not only two categories of people socially. Lydia was one of them. As a woman in a society of male dominance, she was subjugated to others. But she was also a woman who possessed wealth and high social status too. In many ways, Lydia kind of towed the line between being subjugated as a woman and possessing certain privileges. And because this was the world she lived in, 
I personally don't think it's too much to assume that she was certainly aware of the privilege afforded to her. The fact that she is a woman of social status and possessed a great deal of wealth is evidence to us that even before she encounters the gospel of Jesus Christ, she had to live in her world in a countercultural way. And because the Spirit of God is at work and on the move, often proceeding into the places that the apostles and the disciples are led, I wonder, I wonder if Lydia's countercultural way of life had any connection with God opening her heart to listen to the gospel. I mean, think about it in this way. The very things that made Lydia's life so countercultural, her status and privilege, her wealth, her possessions, through the power of the gospel, are the very things that God calls her to submit for the use of and the freedom for others. And this is exactly what she does. She needs no convincing. She understands that the gospel has purchased on her life. And with unhesitating obedience, Lydia surrenders her wealth and possessions, her house for the use of God's servants, for the building of God's kingdom here in Philippi. And this wasn't just a phenomenon that only applies to Lydia. In fact, it was something the early church and Christians ever since have been known for up to this present day. It's the basis for why we at Redeemer have a value of hospitality that is radical in nature. And the way in which we posture ourselves to one another, into the city, into this world, sharing our resources, opening up our homes, and doing life with one another. And this should be our prayer that we, the church, are known for surrender and submission, for giving up all that we have, even if it means our whole lives unto the Lord. Lord, do this work in us. So Lydia, she's a forerunner. She's a forerunner of a new order, a wealthy woman whose status and privilege and possessions have been given over to the Spirit of God. And what we see in Lydia is something very beautiful that is really hard to see in this day and age as well. Power and privilege are put to good use. Lydia's life and all that makes up her life are revalued in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ Jesus is Lord. And we see the Spirit of God at work in her life and how she's repositioned within the mission of God in which she now participates. And the fact that she's in God's holy word should clue us in on something very important. That she is remembered by God in God's record of holy writ. She is remembered in God's holy word in an iconic way. A female leader who led the first house church in Philippi. A woman whose holiness is marked by hospitality to ex-convicts, strangers she did not know, and a jailer a hodgepodge of new converts, all of whom mark the beginning of a new social order where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. The church, guided by the Holy Spirit to live out the gospel through radical welcome and generosity to others. So at the end of the day, Lydia is known for her faithfulness. 
The truth of the gospel has taken flight in her life, and she is aware that the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord means total surrender and submission to God's mission and will for her own life. You know, for Lydia, participating in the mission of God meant submitting her privilege and her power. It meant submitting her wealth and her possessions and all the freedom that accompanied them for the life of others. So what might God be calling you and I to surrender? What might God be calling us to surrender as we seek to listen and to remain faithful to those places and spaces God has called us into? Might God be calling us to put to good use our privilege, our power, whatever possessions and or wealth that you've stored up for yourself? Might God be calling us to put to good use all of the freedoms that we possess for others, for the sake of the gospel, which is visibly expressed in and through our words and our deeds? If so, what might this actually mean for you? What might this mean for myself, for us as a church? What might this actually entail for us to submit much of or maybe all that we have to the Lord who is on mission to fulfill in and through us his mission? Lord, do this work in us. Open the eyes and ears of our heart that we may remain responsive to the work that you are doing and desire to do in us. There's a second encounter. Paul and Silas shortly encounter a slave girl. Again, the spirit is on the move. The spirit is at work. And the story continues with the Holy Spirit leading Paul and Silas into what can only be called a divine encounter. A divine encounter with a slave girl who remains nameless throughout this entire story. Just a quick note, something I can't pass over is the fact that this girl is a slave and she is nameless. I can't pass over this because the reality is that these two realities often go together. They go hand in hand. In the ancient world, to be a slave was to be only a commodity, to be a body in use. And not much has changed since then. History is filled with the displacement and the commodification with the subjugation of individuals, of children and women and men, individuals and groups of people at the hands of others. And we lament because this continues to be the case. But it doesn't have to be this way. Throughout history, God has chosen women and men to participate in the mission of God by fighting on behalf of the marginalized, the oppressed, and vulnerable. People like Elizabeth of Hungary, Josephine Butler, and Constance and her companions, all of which are listed in the Book of Common Prayer as saints whose lives are worthy of modeling and celebrating. Now, if you're wondering who these people are, then good, because in two weeks, I'm going to be teaching a growth series on the Book of Common Prayer. You should all sign up for it. You'll be a better Anglican. 
you'll become a more faithful Christian. And they'll really sign up. RedeemerGSO.org backslash. No, on a serious note, people like Lilius Trotter, who Lilius Van Wyck is named after, a missionary who did work with abused women in London, who then spent 40 years in Algeria giving up her life, her privilege, her power, her wealth, her possessions, like Lydia, tending to women who were victims of domestic violence as a missionary and evangelist. Throughout history, God has chosen regular people like you, like me, to join in and participate in God's mission as renewers of society, people who have given their lives advocating for and fighting on behalf of the vulnerable. So what are the areas of mission God is calling you into? As you seek to listen and to remain responsive to God this morning, throughout this week. You know, God has brought Paul and Silas face to face with a slave girl. A slave girl who represents a network of oppression. For days, this girl would follow them around proclaiming that they were slaves of the Most High God. Who proclaim a way of salvation. You know, the more I've reflected on this particular part of the story, the more I began to wonder about whether or not this woman's life as a slave had anything to do with her discerning that Paul and Silas were slaves of some sort. Maybe it was her own intuition. Or maybe it was the work of the demonic spirit within her. Or maybe, just maybe, it was the Holy Spirit drawing out of her a truth that both God and she herself really desired. Salvation. Freedom. In every sense of that word. What is clear is that in the midst of her dire circumstances, a slave both to a demonic spirit and owners who profited a great deal from that oppression, she recognized a way of salvation connected to the God whom Paul and Silas proclaimed, a God who offers true freedom. It is no accident that she is drawn to these disciples, for the Spirit of God is at work, and the Spirit of God is on the move. Eventually, Paul becomes annoyed with this girl's repeated cries, and it might seem like Luke, the author, wants to remind us how much of a jerk Paul really was here, I think there's more than meets the eyes. You know, Paul is, again, where he is because the Spirit of God has put him there. This is where Paul and Silas have been led by the Holy Spirit's prompting. It is no accident that she is there, and it is no accident equally that they find themselves face-to-face -face with a slave girl whose captivity is crystal clear. At the center of God's mission in Philippi, Paul and Silas discover they are accountable to what they cannot unsee. They are accountable to what they cannot ignore. A girl held captive to a network of oppression that is spiritual, that is economic and political, you name it. A demonic spirit is making use of this girl's body, just as her owners are making use 
of her. And this girl will not remain silent about it. She performs her captivity right before their eyes, repeating this cry, what we might even say is her religious speech. I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. With these words, Paul performs the first exorcism in Acts. And in the name of Jesus Christ, he orders the spirit to leave her, which it does. And in an instant, the work of oppression and its effects on this girl's life are utterly interrupted. From this point forward, the girl begins to fade into the background of a continuing story that unfolds. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. You know, as soon as the spirit leaves the slave girl, her owners see the hope of making money leave them. This is another clue about how oppressive this girl's life and world was. Claimed as property of others, her physical oppression was connected to her spiritual oppression. They were inseparable. She is so unlike Lydia, is she not? Unlike Lydia, the slave girl does not possess anything, but rather she is claimed as the possession of others. She is afforded nothing, no privilege, no power, no freedom. She is trapped in what seems like an endless cycle of oppression until she experiences freedom, salvation from being possessed by the spirit that lived in her. And this is where the temptation lies, church. The temptation to praise God that she's free from spiritual oppression arises for us. But to be honest, I've had to ask myself over and over and over again what good this does for her if she remains the possession and the property of an unjust and oppressive ruler or owner. So as a corrective, maybe you've heard this your whole life, that what really matters is spiritual salvation, that a change of physical oppression is just secondary. The story here in Acts tells us something different. They go hand in hand. Did you know that throughout the New Testament, the word for salvation is more often translated healing in a purely physical sense, which is to say that God opposes all types of bondage, both spiritual and physical. And Acts 16 is evidence of this truth. What we discover here in this story is that the spirit at work in her that binds her body to owners has been cast out. She has been released from an economy of captivity, and this is what Jesus' followers must do. Her freedom means the end of oppression. Her owners will no longer be able to use her as a means for their own ends. Her owners will have to find other ways to secure their own means to sustain their own livelihoods without her, without being owners of people. Her freedom means that they will have to live without the power and the privilege and the property that they thought they once possessed. So by casting out the spirit of oppression, the entire cycle of oppression that made up this girl's life is broken. And it's for this reason that I believe that she fades into the background 
and that being intentional. It's not that she no longer matters in the story. It's the opposite. She matters all the more, and God is revealing something to us, that she will no longer from this point on be remembered as an object of oppression, but of freedom. The endless cycle of oppression ends here. It ends here with the presence and the power of the Spirit of God on the move and turning the world upside down with all of its values being turned inside out. And no, the text doesn't give us the freed voice of the girl, but it does set us up to hear it anew without his chains. Disciples of Jesus Christ should long to hear freed voices and to follow the Holy Spirit in increasing in their number. But the story does not end here. What we find is that to participate in the mission of God and to do the work of the Spirit does not come without cost. And Paul and Silas will soon discover this. So look with me as they encounter their third encounter, a jailer in a prison. So the plot thickens, doesn't it? What unfolds next is significant because in so many ways it foreshadows what Paul and the apostles, what followers of Jesus Christ have to look forward to as they participate in the mission of God, the cost of discipleship. You know, just for clarity, discipleship is not an offer that we make to Jesus. It's the other way around, is it not? And when Christ calls us, we see time and time again that he bids that we come and what? Die. Christian faithfulness is costly. For Paul and Silas, the cost of discipleship means that they will endure the full measure of oppression that was common in Philippi. The full measure of injustice that was common life for so many. Immediately after the girl was set free, the text says that Paul and Silas were seized. They were brought before the rulers. They were wrongly accused. They were racially profiled, attacked, stripped, beaten, and put in solitary confinement. You know, what I find interesting about this part of the story is that at this point, neither Paul or Silas make an appeal to their Roman citizenship. It would have gone a long way, would it not? In the midst of all the chaos and the injustice that they have to endure, they don't appeal to their rights. They don't try to make, take matters into their own hands. They just continue to press forward, guided by the Holy Spirit who is at work. The Holy Spirit who is on the move. And Paul and Silas remain faithful to where the Holy Spirit is calling them, to a place that no one, not even them, would have imagined to find grace. Prison. In the depths of prison where people are locked away on the basis of a false promise that the world is now a safer place, Paul and Silas remain faithful. And they find themselves among those whom Jesus came to proclaim good news to. In our gospel lesson, we learn the captives, Luke 4.18. And through prayer and praise, salvation comes in the form of an earthquake. Read along. The foundations of the prison were shaken. The doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are here. 
And the jailer called for the lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Isn't this amazing? The jailer who represents control over those who lack freedom ends up on his knees pleading for freedom, pleading for salvation. What must I do to be saved? It's as if the the script is flipped once again. The jailer needs freedom as much as anyone else. Do you see that? Can you hear that? And this is what God is up to in his life. Those whom he exercised control over now will be those whom God calls him to care for in tangible ways. And he needs no convincing. At the same hour of the night, he took them, and what did he do? He washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. This is the work of God. Like Lydia, the jailer immediately puts his own privilege, his own power and possessions to good use. For who? For others. For him, surrendering to the mission and will of God meant that he would submit to and clean the wounds of those who were once under his control. And as the gospel began to take flight in his life, God was calling him into a new community of believers whose life would be marked by that same radical hospitality and welcome we see in Lydia's life. You know, the beauty of these three stories, I think, can be summed up in the end where we discover that the first church in Philippi is made up of a ragtag of new converts. Once more, there's a female leader, Lydia. There's this jailer and there's ex-convicts, all of whom would begin to consider themselves brothers and sisters in the Lord. No one could have predicted this. No one would have ever imagined this. Could you? Could you ever imagine that you'd be gathered together with one another in this place right now? Look around. Literally, look around. Don't look at me. Look around at the people next to you and behind you. I guarantee that if you had a choice, some of us wouldn't choose to be here with these people. This guy drives me nuts. (laughs) But his wife is awesome. I mean, think about it. People from different classes and walks of life, right? You see, the values that we hold dear here at Redeemer, they're not man-made. Hopefully you see that from the text. Radical hospitality, intentionally intergenerational, ethnically diverse. These are not secondary to the mission of God. 
These are part and parcel to the mission of God. The fact that we are here is good news, is it not? It's good news worth sharing and living into. Sure, we have a whole ton of growth in these areas, but know this, that the same Spirit of God that we see at work and on the move in Acts 16 is still at work in us. Our life as a community is guided by the same spirit that guided the early church to be a sign of God's kingdom. And in many ways, that's what this sermon is about. Today, we face our own unique challenges, and like the early church, we're called to bless and not to curse, to preach both in word and deed the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. We must never forget that we too, like the early apostles, have been sent out on mission with God. We too are filled. We too are sent out. We too are called to pour out our lives for the sake of God's kingdom. So as we discern with God what God is up to in our lives and where God is calling us to participate in God's mission, I have a few concluding thoughts I want to leave us with. First, where is God calling you? Where is God calling you? He's calling you somewhere. There is a nowhere within the mission of God. Where are the places God is calling you to? Where are the spaces and the places and the opportunities God has actually placed you into? Where's the Holy Spirit calling you into? And where are the places and spaces God is calling you out of? What is God calling you to? There's a difference between where and what. So where is God calling you? And what is God calling you to? What are the privileges and power and possessions that God is calling us to surrender for good use? for the sake of the gospel, for the building of the kingdom, for others? And who? Who are the people God is calling you to? Where is God calling you? What is God calling you to? And who are the people God is calling you to? No person or group of people are beyond the grace of God. We are witnesses of this truth. Who are the people God is calling you to? Friends, family, doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, teachers, students, coworkers, the homeless, the hungry, the marginalized, refugees, those confined to prisons. How far does God desire to reach in and through your life? I'd say pretty far. 
You know, these questions are questions that we cannot ignore. That's not a privilege we have, do we? We can't pretend that these questions don't exist because they do exist. They exist because to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means to be sent out. Where, what, and to whom is God calling us? Oh God, our Heavenly Father, you have manifested your love by sending your only begotten Son into this world that all might live through him. Father God, I pray that you will pour out your spirit on your church, that we may fulfill his command to preach the gospel to all people. Send forth laborers into your harvest, defend them in all dangers and temptations, and hasten the time when the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in, and faithful Israel shall be saved. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.